Today on Motley Fool Money, a little bit of everything. Some big macro, some stock talk, Allison and Bro doing their thing. It's like a golden corral buffet, but instead of a chocolate fountain, we're talking about investing. Starting right now. I'm Chris Hill, joined by Motley Fool senior analyst Bill Mann. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm doing well. I want to start by talking about bellwethers. UPS is the largest delivery company in the world, and it is one of those companies of which people say, this is a bellwether for the economy. So, two questions. Do you agree with that? And since there is no one single company that by itself is a bellwether, what else would you put on the list of companies for when you're trying to get a pulse on how the economy is doing? These are a few of the companies you look at. You know, Chris, I, I do think that UPS is about as good of a bellwether as you can point to in terms of a company that really tracks the performance of the overall economy. The question is, in some ways, which economy? I mean, 62% of UPS's revenues are domestic, which means that 38% of them are not. They are they are either logistics or international shipping, which which means that it's not a perfect uh, bellwether, but it's still at 62% of an economically sensitive uh, function is is pretty good. So, the fact that their revenues were up 12% over, over last year really does mean to me that there is plenty additional economic activity that's taking place uh, at the corporate level in the U.S. Yeah, I'm trying to remember when it was in 2021, but uh, there was... Uh, Two events that happened, I believe, within just a couple of days of each other. And one was the consumer confidence survey that came out. Mm-hmm. And the headline was consumers are not confident. You know, confidence was low. And then a couple of days later, we got consumer spending data. And consumers were spending left and right. <laughs> That's right, but they didn't feel great about it. Right. And it was just, I just remember saying, like, okay. You're telling me you feel one way, but the way you're acting, when I look at the data, the actual data behind what you're doing, it's like, okay, um, I'm not discounting how you feel, but as an investor, I'm going to take the spending data a little more seriously. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like when you look at companies like UPS, you could throw Walmart as another company out sure. there that gets name checked as a bellwether. Um, again, I don't want to get too excited over any single company's quarterly results, but this is one of those puzzle pieces that makes me feel better about the state of the U.S. economy. How cute does it feel now, now that we're in an environment of 7% inflation, that we were actually worried about our spending last year in a time in which inflation was grossly zero? I do love, I do love the thought of consumers basically hate shopping. You know, so for me, when you talk about economic economic sensitivity, it is always I completely agree with you that it is much more important to watch what people and companies do than what they say. And what we are seeing from UPS right now is a lot more a lot more spending, a lot more shipping. And I think that that's very, very meaningful. You touched on the results. Um, I, I mentioned this the other day. Um, we have a video live stream 
available for members of Motley Fool Services. You host the morning show on that live stream. We also have a show called Beaten Rays. And Beaten Rays is, as the name suggests, uh, a look at companies reporting earnings and, you know, did they beat, did they raise, and once again, I thought of that show when I was looking at UPS. The fourth quarter results were great. They raised guidance. They increased their dividend by 49%. And, and we'll get to capital allocation in another vein a little bit later in our conversation. But I'm assuming a company as mature as UPS does not increase their dividend by that amount unless they feel very confident because companies really hate to cut their dividend. They do. Uh, part of it has to do with the fact that dividend-paying companies, because of an inflationary environment, in order to be for the dividend to be attractive, they need to pay more. I mean, if that is something that companies have decided is important to them, being a dividend-paying company in an inflationary environment, if you're paying a 0.5% dividend in a 7% inflation environment, you're not really providing something that is all that exciting to people. Uh, but on on the other hand, the other part of UPS's uh, earnings was an increase in cost for uh, you know, for on a per package basis of eleven percent, which I know you love talking about the uh, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs on this show, but I really <laughs> do feel like you know I know that's great radio material, but it basically <laughs> holds that uh, you you know this type of inflation puts much more emphasis on stuff we need versus stuff we don't need. And I think that UPS uh, showing that level of per-parcel price increase leaves some question to me as to what other parts of the, you know, of, of, of the economy are going to fall on the other side of Maslow's hierarchy of need. What's the stuff that we don't need that's getting crowded out? Uh, last thing before we move on, uh, shares of UPS are hitting an all-time high today. When you look at this business, even with all of the confidence built into their guidance, um, the glowing results they just put up, uh, and the prospects for the economy opening up to a greater degree, not just here in the U.S., but around the world later in 2022, uh, I, I know I'm not the only investor who looks at this and thinks, boy, that's a good looking business. I don't want to, I'm not interested in buying at the all time high, just on a gut level. Not just the all time high, but it's, it's quadrupled essentially since, uh, since late 2020. This, is, this had been a stock that had bounced along at a pretty st steady level for, for years. And then suddenly it, 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 it went up tremendously. Now, I know we're going to talk about some other things, including, you know, in, 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 including oil prices more in a minute. But to me, that's something that's really, really meaningful for, for, for UPS. So I hate to say for a company that, uh, that has, has tripled in price over the short term that it's not something that's all that interesting to me. But at this price, I do wonder if all of the additional costs in terms of labor and, and uh, raw materials have been priced in. I'm always interested in your worldview. And when we were chatting this morning, I, I said, what do you see out there? And you said something that made me think, somewhere John D. Rockefeller is smiling. Because 
ExxonMobil is a direct descendant of Standard Oil, and you said um, one of the things I see is ExxonMobil's revenue up eighty percent, eighty percent over the past year. Yeah, well, I I thought I thought oil companies were dead, not dead, but I thought I thought <laughs> as businesses they were sort of on the way out or slowly, very slowly on the way out. Well, Chris, you weren't alone. In thinking that, I'm, I, you, 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 were, you, you were a member of the majority here. The energy segment was the smallest it has ever been as a portion of the S&P 500. Tech was nearly 40%. Energy was less than 5% of the S&P 500. So, you are not the only one who has, with your wallet, said the energy, the, the energy sector is not something that I'm all that interested in investing in. That was, that was the market. The energy market has gone crazy, and I don't think that it's anywhere close to being done. Eighty percent, you know, an eighty percent rise in uh, in revenues for Exxon. A lot of that has to do with not necessarily additional gallons being sold, but the price per gallon. We are at a point in in this country where we have dramatically underinvested in energy, particularly oil and gas capacity. And there's a piper to be paid, and that piper at this moment is ExxonMobil. So, unlike UPS, and I'm not saying shares of ExxonMobil are at an all-time high because they're not. Um, they are at a two-year high today uh, with these results. But it sounds like, unlike UPS, you look at all the things that are factored in, and you're like, "Yeah, I'm not that interested." You think energy has some room to run here? We're going to call this show the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean, there is no need. There is no need at its core that is more base than energy. And energy costs crowd everything else out. Now, there's a cost of production as well. I get that. But the energy costs themselves, once you get to a marginal place, begin to crowd everything else out. This is the bellwether segment of the economy. For the first time in more than five years, ExxonMobil is going to be buying back stock. Um, they announced a $10 billion repurchase plan, uh, kind of like we were talking earlier about d dividends. I'm assuming, yes, they have more wiggle room. I understand that. Anytime a company comes out and says, well, we've got this plan to repurchase stock, it's not written in stone. They may not execute the full right. amount. That said, it is noteworthy. They haven't done this in more than five years, and $10 billion is still $10 billion. Yeah, it's a $330 billion market cap company, so you're talking about about 3% of total outstanding shares. Is my math anywhere close? Yes, about 3% of total outstanding shares. So um, yeah, so that's a that's a pretty substantial buyback. They also are paying a dividend of four and a half percent. So they have continued to return cash to shareholders. Now a lot of people would say, well, this this stock was uh, is, is essentially been a double since the low in 2020. Why weren't they buying shares then? Recall at the time. We were wondering if people would ever buy a tank of gas again at the time. So this is actually, you know, sometimes you look at it and you could use a little bit of, you know, you you can look at the past and say, well, they should have known. I don't think that this is something that they should have known, and I think that this is a stock that is absolutely positively on the rise. You're an Alphabet shareholder. 
it's one of the biggest and I would argue most consequential businesses in America. Alphabet's going to issue their fourth quarter report after the closing bell today. What do you look to when you are trying to judge the strengths of this business? What are one or two things where you find your eyes going to first on a so day like in, this? In, in this case, obviously, the vast majority of Alphabet's revenues, and I think it's on the order of 90, you know, 90% plus, is still Google. The search, the you know, the targeted ads. So obviously, you want to see, uh, you you want to see continued activity there. I think also this time, in the in the wake of Microsoft stepping up to the plate to uh, to to buy Activision, and it remains to be seen if that goes through. That 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 waves a flag that there's going to be consolidation in the gaming seg- segment, and I really really would expect to hear Google. Talk about some plans in terms of being a player in that market as well. But for the time being, with with Google, almost everything is still search. So uh, Google is maybe the greatest business ever devised. I mean, they you know that their search business is is unbelievably profitable, unbelievably capital light. They almost don't know what to do with all of the money that comes out of it. But almost being very, very different from they don't know what to do with the money. So I expect to see uh, it, not necessarily an announcement because the be, because merger and purchase announcements don't usually come along with earnings, but a little talk about some hints about their strategy in the gaming segment. I was going to say we talk from time to time about the other bets segment of Alphabet's business. Um, not to say that some of those won't pay off somewhere down the line, but we have seen in the six-plus years that Ruth Porat has been the CFO, um, and and I think you and I are card-carrying members of the Ruth Porat fan club. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, she, she has, uh, at various points in time, sort of tightened the, um, the money bag strings uh, for the other bet segment. I, it does make me wonder. You know, Alphabet was one of those companies when Microsoft made their announcement. I thought, Alphabet turns out a ton of cash. Are they going to go buy themselves some sort of intellectual property? You know, whether it's related to the metaverse or something else. I do wonder if a big acquisition is in their future. The exciting thing about a company that has that that has the economics that 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 Alphabet's the Google search has is. And I don't like putting it this way, but it's kind of true. They can waste money if they want to. Like they can stick a pin into the wall and say, "We're going to be playing here if it, you know, if it makes a difference." Right. So it it would not surprise me at all to see uh, to see Google going or Alphabet going after a company like Take Two Interactive, perhaps you know, a company with with a huge history in what wasn't even called the metaverse at the time, but that's exactly what those games are. You know, the the, the biggest titles for Take Two Interactive, and Google can Google can or Alphabet can throw some money out there as it does with its other bet segments and just see what sticks. And if nothing comes of it, 
they've learned and it, it is it, it's it, it's really an unbelievable advantage for for a company with the core business like Google that they get almost an ending unending level of do-overs with the capital that they uh, that they generate gentlemen great talking to you thanks for being here thank you Chris January may be in the rearview mirror, but knowing your risk tolerance is an ongoing process for investors. With some more tactical advice for managing your investment risk, here's Robert Brokamp and Allison Southwick. In 2003, the country was on the verge of war with Iraq, and a reporter asked Colin Powell how well he was sleeping at night. He replied, I sleep like a baby. I wake up screaming every two hours. While recent volatility in the stock market is a far cry from war, it's still causing some investors to lose sleep at night. And right now, as an investor, your tolerance for risk is being tested, even more accurately than any hypothetical online quiz might do. So, bro, let's kick it off. How do I determine how much risk I can and should have? So let's start with ye old foolish advice about how any money you need in the next few years should be out of stocks. And with based that on history, really. So since 1928, the stock market has made money over 84% of three-year holding periods, 88% of five-year holding periods, and 94% of 10-year holding periods. So even though a 10-year holding period is no guarantee of making money, it's still a good bet. It's that money you need in the next few years that you should make sure to keep safe. Now, you mentioned those risk tolerance tools that you can find online. If you're a member of the Motley Fool Premium Service, we actually do have something that we call our allocator tool. And it asks your questions about risk, and it, it gives you an allocation. I like that tool, first of all. It recommends that everyone should have a little bit of money in index funds, which I think is smart. But even if you don't belong to a Motley Fool Service, just about every major financial services firm offers some kind of risk tolerance questionnaire might be a PDF, might be an interactive tool, but you should be able to find a few online to get an idea of what your risk tolerance should be. And these ask basically, you know, how long until you need the money, maybe your experience as an investor, and what you've done during past downturns. As you said, Allison, what we're experiencing now is giving you a pretty good idea of your risk tolerance. Um, and you also got an idea back in maybe if you were investing between 2007 and 2009, or the dot-com crash of 2000, when the market dropped about 50% in both instances. So look back. Were you freaking out, holding on, maybe shaking the couch to find spare change to buy more stocks? That says a lot about your risk tolerance. Now, what if you have very high risk tolerance? Um, what if you're a bold investor, or maybe you just have money to burn? Do you need to fret too much about risk and the perfect portfolio allocation? I would say, actually, probably not, right? If you have a high risk tolerance, and what that means is you don't feel the need to sell stocks when they're down, and a decline in the market or among your top holdings is not going to do much to your retirement goals or any other financial goals that you have, you'll be able to sit nice and calm for the next few years while you wait for the market to recover, then I would say, no, you don't have to worry too much about risk tolerance. I would just say maybe aim to have 5% to 10% of your portfolio in cash, maybe in order to take advantage of opportunities. And that's pretty standard advice for most of our Motley Fool services. Okay, let's say I have a good idea about my risk tolerance. Now, where do I go to see how I might allocate my assets? So, I'll talk a little bit about what I generally recommend in my Rural Retirement Service, which is a premium service, of which I'm the advisor here at The Motley Fool. So, you're a little biased to this opinion. I'm a little biased, <laughs> but it's, it's somewhat informed. Somewhat informed. So, I'll just say this. So, 
Um, three model portfolios, one for people who are more than a decade for retirement, and that's pretty aggressive, 94% in the stock market. The model portfolio for those within a decade of retirement, it is 75% in stocks. And then those who are in retirement, 65% in stocks. But as I said, these are for Motley Fool members, and, and Motley Fool members tend to like a spicy portfolio. So if you're looking for maybe a guideline, if you're more moderate risk tolerance, I would say take a look at target date funds offered by most of the major financial services firms. So a target date fund is a single mutual fund that owns many other mutual funds from different asset categories. You're going to have cash, bonds, stocks, international stocks, US stocks, large cap stocks, small cap stocks. It's going to be an allocated portfolio based on the target retirement date. These funds come in five-year increments. So you'll see target date 2025, 2030, 2035, on up to nowadays, you're going to start seeing 2070 funds. And these funds that are for retirements that are decades away, they're going to be mostly in stocks, vast majority in stocks. But as that retirement date gets closer, these funds will automatically rebalance to be gradually more conservative. But I'm suggesting you just use them as benchmarks to give you an idea of maybe where you should invest your money if you have a more moderate risk tolerance. I've looked at many of them. Here's generally what they say. So if you are 20 to 30 years from retirement, they generally recommend 85% to 90% in stocks. When you reach about a decade for retirement, it's 65% to 70% in stocks. And then in retirement, 50% in stocks. There's definitely some variation. Some firms are more conservative than others, especially for those who are near or in retirement. Also, over the last 15 years or so that target date funds have become popular, you've seen the allocations for retirees go up, the allocations to stocks, that is. For example, Vanguard recently announced that it's going to offer a target date fund for retirees that maintains a 50% allocation to stocks, an alternative to its current fund for retirees, which has just 30% in stocks. Oh, that's a, a pretty significantly more aggressive take there. Why are they doing that? Over the last several years, I think firms have realized that, first of all, we're all living longer. Anyone who retires at 65 could live to 95, and for a time frame that long, you have to have a hefty allocation to stocks so that your portfolio lasts as long as you do and maintains purchasing power. But it's also, frankly, an acknowledgement of that, that we're going to see pretty low returns from cash and bonds. Bonds lost money last year. They're down this year. That's probably going to continue for a while. So these firms are basically acknowledging the fact that maybe we have to up our allocation to stocks. But that does mean these funds are going to be a little riskier. All right, let's rapid fire through a few other portfolio guidelines. Ready? Let's see how fast you can do this. How many stocks should you own? Here at The Motley Fool, we think you should at least have 25. I'm kind of partial to even more, 30, 35. How much should you allocate to a single sector or a group of similar companies? I would say the most is 30%. I mean, you don't want to own a portfolio of 25 stocks, and they're all in high-growth technology stocks. How much in a single stock? This is an interesting one. I would say 5 to 10% for most people. On the lower end, if you're a newer investor, once you become an experienced investor, then maybe you can handle a more concentrated portfolio. Okay, what are maybe some other factors that would influence the amount someone would invest in the stock market? Some investors have other like bond-like assets. So, think of a pension, annuity, rental properties, business, maybe cash value life insurance. These are things that sort of add some safety to your overall financial picture that might allow you to take more risk in your portfolio if you feel that's appropriate. Okay, so let's say I followed all your good advice and I've come up with where I think my portfolio should be, but it's different from where it is now. How do I get from here to there? 
Right. And this is just known as rebalancing. And studies indicate that you don't really need to do it that often, maybe once a year, and maybe even once every few years is enough. Um, I really don't do it more than once every few years, unless there's a really extreme movement in the market, either up or down. So all that said, let's say you do feel like oh, your current allocation is out of sync with where you think you should be. Here's some rebalancing tips and tricks. So first of all, you want to rebalance as much as possible in tax-advantaged retirement accounts to minimize the tax consequences. You can also rebalance with cash flows. Right? If you're still saving for retirement, you can use your future contributions to your 401k and your IRA to put that money into underweight assets to bulk those up could even be in cash. And another way to do it is to be deliberate with your dividends. So instead of automatically reinvesting your dividends or maybe the distributions from your funds or ETFs, let them accumulate in cash, but then use that cash to bulk up your underweight assets. It's also, I think, interesting to consider any future infusions of cash you might have. Maybe you're going to inherit some money soon. You're going to sell a business. That is also another way to think, all right, I've got this cash coming soon. So maybe my overall financial picture is a little safer than it looks right now. Another thing to think about, I, I would say, is, is creating your own sell-off schedule. And this is a term inspired by Warren Buffett's 2012 annual letter. And he was basically explaining why Berkshire Hathaway doesn't pay a dividend. He basically said, listen, we can use that cash and put it to good use. Rather than giving you a dividend, if you're retired, what you should just do is every once in a while, sell a little bit of Berkshire stock to sort of create your own dividend. And you can do that as well with any stocks that you have that you think you might be overweight in, but you don't want to sell off all at one time. Maybe every quarter you look at your portfolio and say, okay, let's just sell a little bit of these holdings to cut those down a little bit. Just in case you're curious, target date funds rebalance quarterly. So I, and that's the, also the payment frequency of most dividends. So I think it's a great idea. If you're in that situation where you just want to gradually rebalance, just do it quarterly. And then finally, I've said this before on various podcast episodes, but I want to say it again. I think it's a great exercise to look at all your investments. Pretend you don't own anything. You're just completely 100% cash. But then you look at each of your investments and you say, if I didn't own this already, would I buy it today? And would I buy this bunch of it? That answer will give you a good idea of what you might want to cut back on or what you might want to buy more of. In the short term, stocks are risky. However, you only get the benefits of stock ownership if you can hold on during the tough times. And at the end of the day, the most important thing that matters is how well you're sleeping at night. And we hope that some of the things we talked about today can help you sleep. Not like a colicky baby, but more like a teenager going through a growth spurt. Why they could sleep, am I right, bro? Oh my gosh. 12, 1, 2, maybe they're rolling out of that baby. There aren't a lot of things I miss about my teenage years, but being able to sleep like that, definitely one of them. That's all for today, but coming up tomorrow, we'll break down the complicated history behind the NASDAQ and how that story affects investors today. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.